Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. So, Dominique, this, this introduction today, when I say this is a podcast about all things equine, we have to also allow that it's a podcast in which we often are talking about other species. And today in particular, we're going to be talking about some uh, important training concept that I know you've wanted to do a podcast on for the longest time. And we've invited a guest who's not a horse person, but a dog person uh, to come and share it with us. So today we have as our guest, Lindsay Wood Brown. And so Lindsay, welcome. Lindsay's on the faculty of the Clicker Expo. Your background, Lindsay, is is in behavior, and you have a tremendous amount of experience working in the shelter world. Would you just very briefly and quickly kind of like to give a an introduction of your background, and then we're going to jump into the topic of the day. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, yes, my, my background is really behavioral psychology. Um, my master's degree is in animal behavior. And, you know, the, the concentration there was, it's the psychology bent, right? So um, a great deal of cognitive psych. And, um, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the field uh, with the applied behavior analysis approach. And that's something that I am, that's a, a lens that I'm really trying to um, you know, get better at. But I spent um, a significant portion of my career has been working in animal shelters. And um, I worked in a few different shelters across the country, uh, leading either their behavior department or leading the shelter as the director of operations. And um, now I do quite a bit of consulting for shelters. And so that's been a really nice way for me to uh, you know, still try to make a difference there and uh, really support you know, more than one shelter. And my, the pieces that are so important to me are really looking at the behavior problems that seem to be these really prevalent behavior problems in animal shelters and trying to kind of distill down to um, what are the essential things that we need to teach and how can I make the, uh, the science right, um, more accessible to shelter workers and you know how do I make a difference in that way so it's you know a little bit of who I am and what I'm trying to do it's so tempting to run down that rabbit hole because when you say the shelter environment I immediately am thinking about the big boarding barns and I suspect from the horse's point of view and the dog's point of view there's not a huge world of difference between uh, a horse living in some of the bigger boarding barns and some of the behavioral problems that uh, need to be addressed and a dog living in the shelter environment. But that's a rabbit hole I think we will we'll, we'll, we'll save for either later or another day because the concept that we wanted to explore today was counter conditioning. Yay! Yay! So, Dominique, that that's fine. So, so let's begin. Let's begin first of all 
Uh, oh, where to begin? So, Dominique, why has this been a topic that you've really wanted to explore? Well, <clears throat> one of the reasons is that my Shetland Canel. And by Shetland, you mean dog, not Shetland pony. No, my dog, yeah. yes. My Shetland dog. <laughs> yes. Um, she's what uh, people would call a reactive dog. Um, she's dog reactive, she's children reactive, noise reactive. So um, I've been exploring with her, you know, desensitization and counter conditioning with, with some success. I'm pretty proud of what I've done so far with her, but I'm not where I would like to be. And what I'm seeing is that there are many, many, many approaches uh, in the market. And sometimes I still feel that there are things we may discover to help us out with our dogs who have problems. And the same for horses, because I think that we can learn so much from the dog world and <clears throat> apply it directly to our horses. So yeah, I'm hoping that I can grab new things. And um, I watched uh, Lindsay's presentation at Clicker Expo 2019 on choice and control in shelters. And I loved it. So yes, and, and this year, Lindsay, as you know, I went to your talk on counter conditioning and your whole rethinking of how you viewed it. And I loved, I loved that talk. So should we begin with what has been the definition, the working definition of counter conditioning? Because there's no point in talking about counter conditioning for the next however long we're together this afternoon. And if we don't define it, there will be people who will be saying, I have no idea what you people were talking about. So how were you f introduced to counter conditioning and, it, and what did it mean originally? Yeah, that's a, that is a perfect starting point. Um, <clears throat> and I think that, you know, when I was introduced to counter conditioning, I don't even, you know, remember what, somewhere in, probably in my dolphin trainer years, right after college and then, um, you know, certainly in graduate school, it's something I explored more, but, you know, it's the, um, it's really this, you know, the way I kind of learned was there's this dichotomy, right? And on one side of this chasm is operant conditioning and on the other side of the chasm is classical conditioning. And classical conditioning is about, you know, respondent behaviors and, uh, and, and somewhere in, that learning, uh, emotions became categorized in that piece as a you know as a subclass of these respondent behaviors. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you there because not everyone is going to be familiar with the language that we use. So if I'm brand new to all of this and I hear respondent conditioning, my tongue may be hanging out. You know what what does that mean? Can you give me an example? Yeah, I know. Sometimes my, my brain is still kind of falling on the floor when I even try to say the words. Um, but it's that idea of, you know, those behaviors that we don't have voluntary control of. So, for example, the kind of the, you know, the common reflexive or respondent behaviors that we might talk about are things like salivation. 
we see food or put a piece of food in our mouth and we, uh, we salivate. And it's not something we can control. It happens uh, simply because of the, because of food. Okay. So that's one of the, I think, you know, uh, easiest kind of uh, best classic, classical uh, examples there of, you know, of, ref of reflexive behavior versus what we might call operant behavior, which is the behavior that is under our voluntary control. So I can reach for that piece of food, right? I can use my, um, I can use my muscles uh, intentionally to access that thing. Does that help? Okay. okay. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's very clear. So I think that um, in that, in that learning period where I was really just kind of studying and, and, you know, researching this, like in a classroom setting or, you know, reviewing textbooks, um, it was, there was this uh, real belief that emotions are reflexive. We can't control our emotions. They are something that just kind of, um, they spring from us without uh, any of our, you know, they're not under our control. And if we uh, wish to change emotions, or if we wish to help our learner, our dog, our horse, our, you know, child, right, feel better about something, uh, instead of, uh, you know, my child hates homework, I want her to love homework, right? Uh, the kind of the the idea is that we need to utilize an application of classical conditioning. And that application is called counter conditioning, which really just means we need to counter, we need to change that currently negative emotion into a positive emotion. Okay. And some of the thinking goes, if, if we're working with emotions, well then, wow, right? This, this sounds like a big deal. We're trying to change emotions and in other humans or non-humans and to do that we utilize this uh, this process the strategy of counter conditioning where we pair the um you know whatever the frightening thing is or the uh, you know thing that our, our learner appears to not like we pair that with something that they like very much so if my um if my dog were afraid of or I believe she were afraid of other dogs or she was somehow reactive, right? There were behaviors I saw that demonstrated to me that she did not feel good about the sight of another dog. Then my goal would be to counter condition that negative feeling by having her see another dog. And then I would deliver something that she, you know, finds delicious, right? So you see another dog and you get a piece of bacon. Okay. The uh, kind of standard, I would say, a, you know, approach to counter conditioning. You hear also <clears throat> the word desensitization, which for me, I mean, I think counter conditioning, you want to have the animal uh, experience a positive emotion and show um, the kind of emotional response you desire. Whereas desensitization, you want the animal to be kind of neutral to the trigger. They may not like it, but they would not react to it. Is this correct? Yes, yes. So uh, usually we would utilize desensitization in conjunction with counter conditioning so that we can actually form a plan 
it looks kind of like a hierarchy, like a you know step by step. We start with the easiest step, um, and that's a, that piece of desensitization where maybe I show my dog another dog, but that dog is you know, 30 feet away. And at that distance of 30 feet, my dog doesn't have that explosive, right, the full-blown reaction. And right. then I would apply the counter-conditioning piece and, you know, the dog's at 30 feet away, my dog spots that dog, and then I pop that you know, piece of pepperoni in her mouth. And that's how, you know, the, the general how we utilize desense and counter-conditioning together. It gives us a little bit more of a uh, it's a little bit more robust when you're using decents along with counter conditioning. So my experience has been that when, well, first of all, when I first started doing this, mm -hmm. I was trying to do too many things at the same time because most of my problems were when we were going on walks to, so that she could relieve herself. Mm -hmm. We would encounter a surprise dog at the turn of a corner and so I was trying to do, you know, the, the relief uh, walk and do the counter conditioning at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, and I was putting myself in all these uh, areas where there were so many dogs, so many surprise dogs, that even just the area, if I went there, she was already aroused because she knew that in this area, we were going to see lots of surprise dogs that were pretty close by and all kinds of dogs. So I realized at some point that I had to separate the two, go to really uh, quiet places where there are no dogs, take my car actually, because on my street, there's a dog at every door. Mm -hmm. um, so take my car, go somewhere, do the relief part. And then if I was going to do the counter conditioning, I would try to be in an environment, like I'll go to the dog park, but not go in the dog park mm -hmm. so that I can, I can control the distance between us and the dog park. But what I'm fine, and when I have a lot of control on the environment where the dogs appear, when they appear, I find it's pretty good. Mm -hmm. But it's the real life that is difficult because you do have all these surprises and then you have these dogs that are themselves reactive and making your own dog reactive. So it's how do we apply it in real life situations is what I'm finding more difficult. Because if, if I have control, if a friend of mine's coming by, we can get really close and I will hear nothing. She, would, she will actually be pretty happy to meet another dog. But in the context of the walks, when I don't have control, it's a different picture. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think, um, you know, I think you just perfectly described the real life challenges of trying to apply descents and counter conditioning. It's really hard for us to, to have that, you know, to have those measures of control. Um, you know, it's the, it's, the real world and having loved a dog for 16 years who was who did not wish to see another dog um i know exactly what that feels like um and i think that those pieces that you're describing there are i think those are some of the some of the reasons why it's so important to me to try to figure out how do we make this how, how do we do this better 
right? How do we take what science has kind of given us and it's, you know, incredibly useful, but how do we improve our strategies so that uh, we can actually, uh, you know, uh, overcome some of these real life challenges, right? Mm -hmm. And that is really what I think I'm trying to dig into. And Alex, you were there for my talk. So at Clicker Expo, so I think you heard me trying to, you know, trying to figure out how do we, yes. how do we refine, right, what we have and how do we take this kind of, um, you know, what is sometimes quite ambiguous, the CC decents application and make, and, and really have um, something more strategic because what I need is something more strategic. And I think that, that the pieces that I realized that I had, uh, you know, either been missing or really needed refining were the, um, how do I know, I need some criteria that tells me when to move from working with, you know, my friend's dog who's come over, right, and I can get five feet away to working with those uh, stranger dogs who are, you know, in that other environment. How do I get from step one to step five? You know, what are those, mm -hmm. what are those pieces? And I just think I think that's what we've all been kind of lacking is a systematic strategy to progress. And so before we go to the system, before we go on, I just want to flesh out the picture a little bit because we've given the dog example and, and I don't want all the horse people listening to this to be going, but, but, but I thought this was a podcast for horses right. and you're talking about dogs. So, you know, the situation that Dominique just described I mean, that could equally be the horse that you want to take out on a trail ride. And the trails, it's great as long as it's a weekday and everybody's at work and there are no surprises. But, oh, on the weekend when the joggers are out and the dog walkers are out and, uh, you know, you're it's you're taking your life in your hands. So it could be that... The stray dogs. Yeah, the stray, you know, it's, so it's the this, this same kinds of situations are there for the horses just as much as they are for the example that Dominique is giving with her dog. So I just want to make sure that we've, we're, we're picturing whatever species you happen to relate to the most or the experiences you've had in your life in terms of having an animal that is giving you the kinds of of stressed, reactive, needing to escape, needing to uh, attack kinds of behaviors. It doesn't matter whether we're talking dog or horse, the concepts that you're talking about apply. Gravity applies to, you know, that gravity is holding both of our dogs and the horses to the planet. And these, these concepts that we're talking about apply whether uh, the animal you love barks or, or neighs. So given that, uh, let, let's get back to you're looking for these strategies and these ways of knowing how am I making progress? Yes, I think, I think that's what we need, right? It's what I need in a shelter, um, what I need for my own animals. It's also, you know, it's what I need for my children. So while I don't have great horse examples, although I did grow up on a thoroughbred farm, and so I, I, I enjoy talking about the the horse examples, I just don't know them as well as you guys do. 
whatever that learner is, I think if I'm trying to measure our success, then I need a specific behavior. I need to figure out what does that look like? What is it that I want my learner to do? So if it's your Sheltie, right, who uh, tends to react when a dog is too close or in some condition, right? Yeah. What is it that I wish that she uh, do instead? Right? What, it, what do I want that to look like? And <clears throat> I think the key piece here is that if we, if we do not define what that behavior might be, then we don't have the criterion with which we, you know, we know how to progress. So I'll give you a dog example because I'm, I'm better at those. Um, but I spent a good 10 years in sheltering, working on a big project where I was trying to come up with a counter conditioning and desensitization plan to support dogs who were considered food garters. So if a person approached a dog and he were in possession of his food, food bowl filled with you know, some valuable resource in it, then that dog would freeze, growl, snarl, snap, lunge, bite. And you have the equivalent in the horse world. Okay. Food guarding. <clears throat> okay, good. And so I spent years on this and you know, probably by the end of that 10 year period where I was really running dogs through it, anywhere between, I guess, oh, there were 50 dogs a year. So let's say, you know, 50 to 60 dogs a year. So, you know, 500 to 600 dogs kind of as my... That's a good sample. Distance. Yeah, so it's a good <laughs> sample. And I, um, it gave me opportunities to refine that protocol, right? And, and it was a classical conditioning, counter-conditioning desensitization protocol. And the thing that I think saved me there was that I, while my language wasn't what I wish it were and what it would be now, I think what saved me is that even though I was talking about emotion, I want the dog to feel happy when I approach his food bowl instead of feeling angry, I right out of the gate was measuring behavior and defined what it was that I wished for that dog to do when I approached his food bowl. And what I wanted him to do was to pull his head out of that food bowl and look up at me. So there was a clear alternate behavior that I wanted to see that for me indicated um, some measure of success there. And if I saw that behavior at an early stage in that desensitization plan, right, that hierarchy, that like ladder rungs, if I saw that at step one, right, then I knew when I could move to step two. And step two would be a condition that was somewhat harder. Either there's a more valuable resource in the food bowl, right? something like that. Or the other dog is a little bit closer if I'm talking about dog-dog reactivity. Does that make sense where I'm going? I had that, I had a clear alternate behavior and I think that is the piece that uh, I, I certainly glossed over in my, in my, you know, kind of growing up in the field. And I'm getting much clearer, more clear about. So you were, so even though in intellectually, if you had been writing a paper about it, 
you might have been talking about that you want the dog to uh, be happy when you take the food away, though you might not have put it in these words that emo that, that what you're really you're looking at not just emotional behavior, but there is a discrete behavior that the dog was exhibiting. And as it lifted its head up, who knows what it was feeling, but its head was coming out of the bowl. And that was something that you could observe. Yes, yes. exactly. And it's a behavior that is under that learner's voluntary control. Yes. And that means I can select it. And yes. I, so I can reinforce it. And once I have that behavior, you know, then the sky's kind of the limit, right? Now I can put that behavior in different conditions, harder conditions, um, when, you know, more challenging for the animal and, and measure fluency of that behavior in those conditions. Yes. What happens when you get caught at the level and you don't feel like you're progressing anymore? Yes. Um, I think that, I think that happens all the time. And I think, again, I think that's one of those real life challenges uh, is that we feel like it's, I don't have what I need now to move on to the next step. Right. So mm -hmm. <clears throat> what do I need to do? And sometimes um, I would find that there's an intermediate step that would serve me well there. So if I, if I, um, let's say I put a higher value resource in the dog's food bowl, right? Instead of it being kibble, it's now hot dogs. And when I approach that food bowl, the dog, you know, growls. And I think, well, shoot, you know, when I approached and it was kibble, I got the fluent, beautiful head lift that I wanted. But when I approach and it's hot dogs, I don't. I get growling again. And so if I can find an intermediate step or an intermediate condition, then I can get that fluent, that beautiful head lift back. And that intermediate condition, it could be a variety of things. It certainly could be that the value of the resource in the bowl I, I adjust. And so it's not hot dogs, it's cheese. Um, but it could also be, you know, how close did I get to that dog? Was I reaching for the food bowl? Uh, was I, you know, like right over the food bowl with him? Was I two feet away? You know, so there are some other parameters that I can adjust there that can be helpful. So I think that intermediate steps um, are really beneficial to us. And again, I think that having the clear behavior uh, helps you so much here. Because without that clear behavior, it, it's, it's really harder to know if you are stuck, right? Or if there is progress. And if you've got the clear behavior that it's, it makes it a, um, not easy, but a, um, almost a, a simpler task to figure out how to adjust the conditions under which you're seeing the behaviors. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> So still not the easiest thing to talk about. So what what happens to what happens to emotions in all of this? And I would say because there are different ways of thinking about what that question really is about. Um, what happens to our attention on emotions? 
Um, yeah, that's a good one. I think uh, it's a really good question. And there, there are lots of kind of fun ways to think about that. Uh, I think that, so for me, who had all of my attention was focused on emotions, right? I'm changing the emotions. When I became clearer about what I was really trying to do, which was change behavior, right? And some of my attention was no longer on emotions. I think then that made the progress much swifter for me mm -hmm. because now I can actually attend to behavior. So when I would be out walking my own dog, Lyra, the one who I, she was, you know, we would label her as quite aggressive to other dogs. And if I were out walking her and I'm, you know, initially so focused on, is she happy? You know, is she happy when she sees another dog? And I shifted to when she sees another dog, does she fluently, quickly turn her out, turn her head to look at me? And if she does, right, then I know I'm I'm in at that success piece. That's where I want to be with her. It's a better measure for me of success than uh, trying to determine if she's happy by inferring happiness from a variety of behaviors she may be showing at that moment, from tail wagging and relaxed face. So when my attention shifted away from ambiguous emotion to is she demonstrating this alternate behavior that I've taught her in this condition where we're actually like kind of close to the dog park, right? That was a, it became a, just a clearer process for me. I could get further faster. So I want to make a little parenthesis here because a lot of the strategies that are out there involve the dog turning his attention to the trainer, you know, or, or doing a U-turn or there's a lot, you hear a lot of that. And for my dog, and this is, you know, when we say change conditions, it can take so many forms, but I was trying all these things and depending on, on the distance, you know, because for me, with this dog, distance has been my best friend, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, chicken and distance. But what I discovered with her was that she needed to look at the trigger. And if we turned our back to the trigger, on the trigger, mm -hmm. that would make her much more reactive than if she could look at the dog pass by then we could go the opposite direction. It's actually better if we go the opposite direction because if we start following, then her leash manners are not as good. But she needed, I think some dogs, they need to gather information before you can walk away. And I've been much more successful now doing that. And the behavior, you know, for me is that I want a silent, relaxed dog that can look at the trigger pass by but I'm not at a level where and this is hard when you fit when someone just turns the corner mm -hmm. you know and you're like oops I want to go across the street but when I go across the street I'm turning my back to the trigger and that will make her explode much more mm -hmm. so there are all these details where you know Alex always says go to people for opinion and horses for answers. So of course, you know, you have to adapt all the, and the approaches I'm talking about are, are approaches that have 
proven to be very successful for a lot of dogs. But as usual, you have to look at your dog and see if the alternate behavior works for them in this condition. Yes. And maybe, you know, because it's, she doesn't have a problem making U-turns with me. You know, she'll follow me everywhere, but not if there's a dog behind her back. That's like the horses that are, oh, let's say, afraid of the mailbox. And you get them, you ride them in a way that you've gotten them up to the mailbox. And the horse is now facing the mailbox. And, and it's, it's uh, still breathing. <laughs> You're still you're you're still sitting in the saddle. Everything's still good, and then you, you pass have, it, and then you pass it, and the mailbox is behind the horse, and oh, that is a scary situation for many horses. So it's not it's not just dogs who sometimes they need to look at and see and be aware, be able to track. And when when you have uh, when you're riding out and you have a a horse that's afraid of cars that one strategy strategy is often as the car approaches that you let the horse turn and so as the car goes by the horse can continue to watch the car as it passes and goes by so that it's not um, it doesn't suddenly have the car behind it so these these concerns these fears Again, I just want to make sure that we're not leaving the horse people out. You're pretty the... good, actually, at providing the horse example. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, when so when we're talking about intermediate conditions or, you know, you can have the same dog at the same distance, but if my dog is moving or not moving, it's not the same thing. Exactly. You're exactly right. There are all of these conditions, and, you know, the, it's the... Each, each animal is the individual, right? And so we, we do need to adapt and we do need to figure out what, um, you know, what the alternate behaviors um, are. And here, you know, here's where I think classical conditioning and counter conditioning is really beneficial, especially initially, because I think you get when you do some of those initial pairings of there's the frightening thing, here's the wonderful thing, right? That's when the dog may show us you know, kind of gives us this, uh, you know, the, all the possibilities then. They demonstrate all the possibilities of what those alternate behaviors may be. It's up to me, right, or you as the, as the, uh, the trainer, the handler to, to then, you know, select, I think. Mm -hmm. and to I be think aware. And yes. Yeah. Exactly. To, to be aware and to select and to, and then, you know, yes, then you figure out how the, how do the conditions vary with the individual learner that you're that you're working with and how do you adjust those things and i think all of that is really um it's all you know really valuable grist for the mill there i think that like we have to be able to think through each each animal as that individual animal so i i think that's a profound statement and we need to make sure that we highlight it so that we don't just gloss over it and go running running on because it's very easy to f to follow recipes, mm -hmm. you know. So I've 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 read the counter conditioning recipe, and my recipe says that the dog is to look at me, and I'm getting stuck, 
and it's not really working and I you know it's I'm feeling really frustrated because I've read on the on Facebook all these wonderful stories that people have shared about how this particular technique has worked so beautifully for their dog or their horse but it's not working for me and it's this the the following of the recipe so closely that the recipe fails rather than saying well within that initial um, counter conditioning phase I'm observing my animal's behavior and based on what I get what I see I'm going to select behaviors to reinforce that will support the direction that I want the the training to go but if I uh, try and stick too rigidly to a particular protocol, I may miss what my individual needs. Would that be a reasonable summary, summary of, of what, what you just said? said? Absolutely. Yes. I think that's, that's very much it. Because just because, you know, um, one person says that, you know, your dog must look at the other dog and then look back at you, that may not, um, that may not benefit your goals. Right, and it may not be what um, what is even necessary. Right, so if you have that other dog out there, and your dog spots that dog, and you do some counter conditioning work there, and your dog is continuing to gaze at the other dog, but you've got the tail wag and an open mouth, and you know relaxed body posture, like those are all behaviors, right? That are behaviors that are um, different from the problem behaviors, mm -hmm. and reinforce them. Right, like select, select those. Select what is what your dog is expressing and demonstrating that is going to benefit your animal and you know your goals for this. I've been looking for a good stopping point, and I think I found it. Throughout our many podcasts, you've heard us say many times that it is always a study of one. Training is not a set recipe. We can give examples, we can describe protocols, but then it is up to each of us to adjust the procedure for the individual we are working with. There's so much more to be said about counter-conditioning. We're not even halfway through a conversation that included discussions of the tennis great Andre Agassi and goats learning Spanish walk. To find out what the connections are to counter-conditioning, you'll have to wait until next week. I'll also remind you that I have a second podcast, Horses for Future. This week, I'm in the midst of a three-part series on the work of George Lakoff. In clicker training, we emphasize how important it is to focus on the behavior you want. Lakoff helps us to understand why. When you let yourself get distracted by all the unwanted behavior, you end up strengthening the very thing you don't want. As we continue with the conversation on counter-conditioning, we'll see that one of the pitfalls to the procedures is it can get you doing exactly that, strengthening that very, oh, there's something out there that I must, must look at and react to, behavior that you don't want. You can end up teaching your dog or your horse to be on the alert because those yummy treats you're giving them must mean there's something out there that needs their attention. 
So the Lakoff work fits as well into this training discussion as it does into a discussion of what horse people can do to help create a healthy planet. You can find the current episode of the Horses for Future podcast at sequestercarbon.com or find it on my website, theclickercenter.com. So enjoy all these podcasts and next week we'll continue on with this conversation.